Praise Lord for him whose gospel your human life declared, who, worldly gain forsaking, your path of suffering shared. From all unrighteous mammon, O raise our eyes anew, that we, in our vocation, may rise and follow you. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Today we park the car at St. Matthew, Apostle and Evangelist. The church has set aside September 21st. September 21 is the day that the church recognizes and commemorates St. Matthew, Apostle and Evangelist. Uh, Proclaiming the One is a program here at KNNALP 95.7 in Lincoln, Nebraska, where we take a look at the upcoming readings for our divine service. And Proclaiming the One Majoring in the Minors is a offshoot of that, where we look at the minor festivals, feast days, commemorations, and occasions. Today, we're going to be looking at St. Matthew, Apostle, and Evangelist. I'm Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline and Vicar Thomas the Tank Goodroad. Uh, we are privileged to serve the saints here at Good Shepherd. And uh, pa- Pastor Moline has this uh, devilish look on his is face it right the now. the tank or is it the tank engine? Like, you know, the little happy train that talks to kids. Uh, he looks more like a tank than a happy tank engine. Okay. But uh, I... Uh, you know, Tommy Boy, Little Timmy, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he's just such a happy, nice gentleman. And, uh, you know, it's always fun to pick on the new vicar. And, uh, you know, Pastor Moline and I have zero power in the world, except that we get to boss around a vicar. And so we want to take full advantage of that. No, the vicarage program has been a great blessing for over two decades here at Good Shepherd. And uh, we're very, very thankful to be able to help in the formation process for young men who aspire to the office of the holy ministry and uh, St. Matthew uh, the gospel of Matthew talks a lot about the office of the holy ministry and so that's kind of a neat little segue there. Uh, Pastor um, I want to read to you a little bit out of the church year guide by Paul Bosch Uh, with regard to September 21, the day set aside for St. Matthew, Apostle, and Evangelist. It says, uh, Matthew, as evangelist, is represented in iconography as a winged man, following the schema for the four evangelists adopted from the book of Ezekiel and Revelation. Matthew's gospel is understood to picture Jesus as a true human being. Um, We got a little bit of a flavor for that as I read the uh, verse appointed for St. Matthew in... um, uh, by all your saints in warfare at the beginning of our program. Just some initial thoughts about either that comment or St. Matthew in general. Yeah, I think uh, it is kind of an important thing for us as Christians to remember the number four here. Um, in the uh, the book of Ezekiel and Revelation, there are the four angels that are right around God uh, in in heaven. And uh, uh, the, the way that we come into the presence of God, of course, is through the hearing of his word. Uh, sometimes the word is attached to water, sometimes it's attached to bread and wine, but it is the word that brings God into our very midst. And I think that uh, this iconography of the 
uh, evangelists attached with those four living creatures that are around God are helpful in that way, kind of as a way to teach us that. And it is interesting to see St. Matthew as a real man because St. Matthew, of course, is a sinner, a tax collector, a bureaucrat who works for the government and is despised by his fellow uh, Hebrews as a result of that. And uh, um, yet he's still loved by Christ and called by Christ to follow him. And in the same way, we are sinful, and yet God also loves us and calls us to follow him as well. So I think those are helpful things to think about. We obviously use that as symbology, uh, not necessarily as a um, absolute truth. The uh, symbol for Matthew is three money bags, since tradition assumes that the disciple was the tax gatherer of Matthew 9, 9 to 13, which just happens to be our gospel reading appointed for St. Matthew Day. Um, the uh, This Paul Bosch in this book says uh, it's assumed that uh, it's the guy. Um, there is, I mean, I haven't heard this. This this book is uh, 40 years old, I believe. Um, Augsburg Publishing House, uh, 1987. So this book is is dated. Uh, I kind of forgot that there there was kind of a, a more liberal uh, question that maybe the Matthew of Matthew and Levi of Matthew are two different or separate people do you have do you have any any comments or observations on that uh, that's definitely a minority kind of an opinion I think when you look at the entire lists of the people um, who are the 12 chosen by Christ I think it's kind of clear and I think you know we we can um, definitely talk about those things and and are we 100% sure no and yet at the same time it's pretty clear what is meant there in the same way that we have Vicar Goodroad whose first name is also Thomas even though we don't use that name this year or we can call him Little Timmy or Tommy the Tank or whatever it is that you're going to call him tomorrow uh, we all know who we're talking about even though there are those different names and in fact in early uh, Christian uh, understanding the idea is is that when you are baptized and you become a Christian, you leave behind your old life and your old person, and you receive a new name upon your baptism. Excellent point. And I think that we can probably see that not only with Matthew and Levi, but uh, with Paul and Saul, uh, as well as Simon and Cephas. We, we recently had uh, uh, Nathaniel Bartholomew. Right. And so this is not uncommon, and uh, I, I think we can... Uh, without a doubt, um, this this is some academic pinhead uh, discussion here. Uh, Matthew is Levi. Levi is Matthew, and uh, the words of our text um, are what we're going to be looking at and uh, focusing on as we celebrate the divine service in. Uh, memory, honor, commemoration of St. Matthew. The color for St. Matthew's Day is uh, red because uh, Matthew, like um, almost all of the other apostles, died a mar martyr's death. And so uh, we've talked enough about Matthew and about the day of Matthew. The gospel reading, Matthew 9, 9 to 13. Vicar, take it away. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, 
Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, there you have it, the gospel reading for St. Matthew, Apostle and Evangelist Day, Matthew tw- or September 21 on the church's calendar. Uh, Pastor, you know I love to do this with regard to the uh, kind of isagogical nature of what's going on in, um, in the uh, text that is before us. As Jesus passed on from there, um, you know, we we know in uh, I guess the Gospel of Luke we have a clear demarcation at the end of chapter nine in Luke nine that uh, Jesus has set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. We know what awaits him there. He knows what awaits him there. Where are we in the Gospel of Matthew? Uh, in Matthew chapter 9, and where are we on, in the life of Jesus and the journeys of Jesus? Where's he, where's he been? Where's he going? Yeah, um, well, that's, that's kind of a complicated question in some ways. In, uh, where we are in the book of Matthew is we're just a little ways past the ending of the Sermon on the Mount that uh, concludes at the end of chapter 7, which is, chapter 8. Which is very early in yes. the ministry of Jesus. Chapter 8 uh, begins with when he came down from the mountain, and this, uh, this text is in chapter 9. Now, uh, what it says right before this in chapter 9, of course, is that uh, Jesus got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. And so we're talking here about the Sea of Galilee. Now, the complicated thing with this is that his home city is the city of Nazareth, and that is uh, probably uh, 15 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. So it's not right on the shores, um, maybe a little further even than that. But uh, when we're talking about his own city here, it's very likely that we're talking about Capernaum. Capernaum is the uh, home base for the preaching and teaching ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It's where he had called Peter to be a disciple on Andrew and James and John. Uh, And it's likely that he was staying there in Peter's house and using the Sea of Galilee as kind of a way to go out into different areas and preach and teach. It's also a central hub for uh, a lot of the roads and things passing around the area. And so we're probably talking about Capernaum, but we can't rule out that he crossed the the sea and then walked the miles to his own town of Nazareth as well. Now, Vicar, I hope you're paying attention to that because um, I know of no one. I mean, uh, I did not tell him this question was coming ahead of time. I did not ask him to prepare isagogically for all of this kind of stuff. But um, by sheer repetition, by studying God's Word, by uh, studying God's Word not in isolation but uh, as, a, as a whole, all 66 books of the Bible, um, and by also taking seriously the, the geography and uh, the, the isagogical nature of what's going on, um, this is the kind of stuff that Pastor Moline was able to share with our hearers right off the top of his head. And for a pastor to be able to do that is, uh, 
well, I, I think it's important. I think it's necessary. Does the fact that Jesus is at Capernaum uh, crossing the uh, Sea of Galilee save anyone? No. Does it paint a picture of what we're about to see? And does it uh, enhance the beauty of Scripture that we study? Absolutely. And so um, I, think, I think that is a real gift that you have, Pastor, and I think it's one that not only every pastor should aspire to, but it's one that every Christian can attain just by reading and studying God's Word. Now, we're uh, up against our first break, and uh, we've got all the way to halfway through verse 9 of Matthew 9. And so we got quite a bit to unpack here in the rest of our gospel text. Don't change that dial. Proclaiming the one, majoring in the minors, St. Matthew. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, majoring in the minors, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Thomas Goodroad. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Today we're looking at St. Matthew, apostle and evangelist. September 21 is the day that the church has set aside to honor, remember, and commemorate St. Matthew. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about the man, St. Matthew, uh, about some of the isagogical things with our text, Matthew 9, 9 to 13. And uh, we also um, talked a little bit about the history of St. Matthew Day. Uh, Let's get back into our text. Matthew 9, 9 to 13. As Jesus passed on from there, uh, we we said uh, crossing the uh, Sea of Galilee and entering into Capernaum, um, more than likely that's where he is at. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Two things there, Pastor. First of all, man called Matthew. Is this a uh, common name? Is this a Jewish name? Is this a Greek name? Uh, about the name Matthew. And what does it mean that Matthew is sitting at the tax booth and that Matthew is a tax collector? Yeah, Matthew is a Jewish name. It's a little different than some of our other Jewish names, uh, at least in the way that it sounds, but it is a Jewish name and means gift of God. You have the word Yahweh at the end of it, which is where the you part of the Matthew comes from. Uh, And so in that sense, it means gift of God, Matthew. Uh, What it means that he's sitting at the tax collector's booth is a more interesting thing to consider. Uh, The Romans were very good at bureaucracy yet, and this is the whole point of their expansion and making an empire was that they were making tons and tons of money by taking it away from the people that they conquered, both on the battlefield and then also by subjugating those people. Um, And so this was a big thing for them, and they were very good at it and organized about it. And the way that you become good and organized at it is, is that you don't actually do it through the bureaucracy itself, but instead you hire someone else to do it for you. So people would um, make a bid and say to the Romans, this is how 
how much taxes I can collect for you in this particular locale, this particular town, this particular area. And the Romans would pick whoever said they would get the most taxes from the people and they would hire them. But the rules then were that that person was able to collect more than the amount they gave to the Romans um, percentage-wise and keep it for themselves, which like, was the— Like a commission. Yeah, a commission. It was the uh, perk for collecting the right amount of taxes is you made more and on the commission. And so because of that, they were often despised by the locals, but they were loved by the Romans because they would get their money. Uh, and and you see this then. Matthew is Jewish. His name is Jewish, and yet he works for the Romans and collects money for them. Uh, and uh, it, it kind of puts him in a weird spot here. And he was considered then to be amongst sinners because in that sense he was traitor against his own people. He was working for a foreign occupying government. Uh, he was despised, looked down upon just the same way that Pastor Poppy and Vicar think about the IRS. Of course, I never think anything bad about the IRS. Um, but uh, Just in <laughs> case these recordings are being monitored. Uh. <laughs> That's right, exactly. So, I mean, that kind of gives you an idea of what uh, Matthew's job is. Okay, and uh, so Jesus walks up to him. He doesn't interview him. He doesn't ask him any questions. He doesn't, uh, well, I mean, Jesus knows everything. But Jesus just simply says, follow me. Mm -hmm. And Matthew doesn't ask any questions. Matthew doesn't uh, interview Jesus or anything like that. He just follows him. This, this whole thing seems weird, unusual, bizarre. Again, Pastor, what's happening here? Well, it is unusual and weird and bizarre um, that somebody, an exchange like this could actually happen. But I think what you see here is the effect of God's word upon sinners and that when that God's word is spoken, that it does uh, exactly what it what it says it's going to do. In the same way that God said, let there be light and there was light, when Jesus says, follow me, we have really no choice uh, except to do what he tells us to do. And I don't mean that in a law way. I mean that in a gospel way. When God speaks his word to us, it is a great blessing. Now, do we know? I mean, Capernaum's not a huge town. It's possible that uh, Matthew had heard of Jesus or heard about Jesus, and we, we can't uh, assume those sorts of things. But we can see here clearly the way that God's word works. As Jesus reclined at table in the house... Uh, there's a party going on. Uh, many of the tax collectors and uh, sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, they're, they're having this celebration, you know, for whatever reason. They're having this celebration, this posture that we are told about, reclining at table. What can you tell us about how people sat, how they ate, um, is uh, they didn't get out a, a lazy boy and sit in a recliner. So teach us, Pastor. Yeah, well, it says two things. First off, uh, this teaches us that uh, this is probably at St. Peter's house, that St. Peter wasn't a poor uh, lowly fisherman, that he was doing fine financially. He's able to uh, have a house uh, that matches the normal house. And, and the typical house at this time had a courtyard in the middle with the rooms along the outside of them, a smaller cubiculum, which is where people slept. But then usually in the back, in between uh, the, um, the center courtyard and then the back was where the kitchen would be, there was what's called a triclinium, uh, which would be where the table would be. And tables back then were not tall tables like we have today. 
today because you saved money by not building chairs then. But what you did is you had a short table, uh, usually U-shaped, and then you put big cushions around it and everybody laid on their side to eat. Uh, and that's kind of the way that things went about. So when it says Jesus reclined at table, it means that he is there in the triclinium of this particular house, uh, laying on cushions, having a conversation with the other people around the table. Okay, hopefully everybody has this picture in their mind then. The Pharisees see it, and they say to his disciples, a little passive-aggressive nature going on here. They don't talk to Jesus. They talk behind Jesus back to his disciples. Uh, The more things change, the more they stay the same, Pastor. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But either Jesus overheard it, or Jesus, because he knows all things, could hear their hearts. Uh, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Um, What are the Pharisees trying to do? And what is Jesus' intent with his answer? Yeah, that's, that's a really important thing, isn't it? That those who are not sick don't need a doctor, only those who are do. Um, because what Jesus is teaching us here is that Christ comes only for sinners. Uh, and so we need to be sinners. And when I say that, I don't mean that we should go out and do sinful, terrible things, but rather that we need to just say the same thing that God says about us in his word. God's the one who says that we are sinners. God's the one who says that we are sick with sin. And it's because God's word teaches us that, that we know we need a doctor. And that's exactly why Christ has come then to forgive sins, to rescue from sin, death, and the power and the devil, and to call sinners like Matthew out of their sinful lives to be Christians, to follow Christ and to live in his mercy and peace and comfort forever. Vicar, I know you've been working on this text. Um, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What, what insight can you give us on this uh, response of Jesus? Well, Pastor, I think, if I may, I, I would call this a little bit of double speak on, on the part of Jesus. Okay, explain what you mean by that. Well, what I mean by that is that, in one way, he's saying, I didn't come to call the righteous. In other words, the Pharisees, those who think themselves very righteous. The self-righteous. Exactly. Okay. Those who are very self-aggrandizing. And, you know, we, uh, we see that also in, in the parable of the... Uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, you know, who, oh, thank God that I'm not like that uh, dirty sinner over there. You know, that's Jesus didn't call come to call those people who already think that they have everything because they have supposedly fulfilled the law perfectly uh, f- since the day they were born. Uh, instead, he came to call those who are sinners. That's, I mean, essentially, this is the other part of the double speak that I'm talking about. Sinners are actually everybody. So to the Pharisees, what he's saying is, well, I didn't come for you. I came for all of these that I'm eating with right now, these tax collectors and these sinners. But to those who understand this text and understand what he's really talking about here, he came to call everyone on earth, everyone with a sinful nature. That's, that's everyone. That's all sinners. Uh, but the Pharisees don't realize that. They don't really realize that uh, he is talking about everyone. That's why he tells them to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Because when they realize what he means by that, that he desires mercy, not sacrifice, they will realize that their job is not to uh, uphold the law perfectly, 
That's Christ's job. Their job is now to believe in Jesus Christ and all the work that he is currently doing in front of them and all the work that he is about to do when he goes to Jerusalem to hang on the cross. Pastor, thank you, Vicar. Well done. Uh, Pastor, when someone is full of themselves, there's really no room for God, the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness that Jesus has earned for us. Um, Why is this such a dangerous and yet common affliction that people have? Well, I think it's a a common affliction because of the sin that is in our own heart. Sin, which is, uh, you know, we uh, talk about it dogmatically. We say it is in curvasu se, uh, which means curved inward upon oneself. And and that's the reality. We just care about ourselves primarily. We care about some others because of how that might affect us, right? So we we care for our spouse because uh, if something happened to them, it might make our life more difficult or, or challenging. Uh, and I'm just getting to the basic sinful nature here. I don't want to talk for Christians, of course. Um, we are turned inward on ourselves. Every single person is sinful. Every single person thinks that way. Now, the amazing thing about God is that he desires to fill us instead with himself. And... Uh, when our heart is full of ourselves, there's not room for Christ. Even when our heart is only a little bit full of ourselves and mostly empty, uh, Christ still wants to be the complete fill of our heart. And when that's the case, when he is, then we are able to love the people around us and love God perfectly. Um, that doesn't happen in this sinful world as much as it ought to. And God is always teaching us in this particular text to repent and to uh, confess our sins and be forgiven by Christ, which is the whole point. It's the sick who need a doctor. It's sinners who need Jesus. And I think the uh, Pharisees probably would have said that it's the sick who need the doctor. Uh, the uh, the Pharisees and the tax collectors um, were... were um, the Pharisees were the ones who were looked up uh, very well respected. The tax collectors were despised. But when we realize that we are all sinners in the eyes of God, and it's really a call to repentance for hypocrites, Pharisees like you and me, people who are full of ourselves, Jesus says, uh, now, now's the time to realize uh, that you are sick. You are sick with sin. And the remedy for sin is me, God in the flesh. Think of all the churches out there who deny sin right now. This text really speaks to them very clearly. We need to be sinners so that we can have Christ. That's a home run as we go to our break. This is Proclaiming the One, majoring in the minors. St. Matthew, Apostle and Evangelist. We'll be right back. Don't chase that dial. K-N-N-A-L-P 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska (laughs) 
Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Today we're looking at St. Matthew, Apostle and Evangelist. The church has set aside September 21 for our observance of St. Matthew Day. In our first two segments, we looked at the gospel reading set aside, Matthew 9, 9 to 13. In this segment, we want to take a look at our Old Testament reading, Ezekiel 2, verse 8 to 3, verse 11. Vicar, take it away. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel, and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart, and hear with your ears. And, when, and go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. It's an amazing Old Testament reading from Ezekiel 2 and 3. Uh, there have been times when I've been to a pastor's ordination or installation when Ezekiel is the Old Testament reading. Uh, generally, that's from Ezekiel 3 or Ezekiel 33. Uh, it appears to me that we have the call of Ezekiel recorded for us in these uh, these words from uh, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, and son of man is God's term of endearment. Can I say it that way? For Ezekiel. Um, what is conveyed to us by this name Son of Man, because Jesus appropriates this title for himself, and uh, he does it for a specific reason. What uh, What is significant about this term, Son of Man? Yeah, Jesus is going to take this uh, phrase that uh, is applied here to Ezekiel and fulfill it in himself when he says, you know, things like uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, uh, not to be served, but to serve, things like that later on in the gospel. And so uh, it is a messianic sort of title. It is a title then that uh, fulfills 
uh, finds its fulfillment in who Christ is and more importantly, what he does. And so uh, Ezekiel is prophesying, speaking God's word, and Jesus is God's word. Uh, Jesus is warning the people of Israel and Christ is a person of Israel who dies for the people of Israel. And even in this particular uh, day where we see the Pharisees here um, not wanting to uh, listen to Jesus. We see that also in this discussion about the hard foreheads of the people of Israel. And so everything that uh, this title is talking about finds its fulfillment in who Christ is later on. It seems that in this dialogue, you know, where God is speaking to Ezekiel and Ezekiel's prophesying, it seems that there are times when God uses this term, son of man, um, almost as kind of a condescending term. I'm God, and you're not. I'm God, and you are the Son of Man. Emphasizing Ezekiel's humanity and that God is using a mere human to speak the Word of God and the truths of God. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, there's probably a certain amount of that, and I think uh, perhaps, too, when we consider the fact that Ezekiel isn't um, living in the land of Israel, that he's already, in one sense, in exile. And so it's God speaking about his people from a distance also, um, speaking about them uh, far away. Ezekiel, too, when you read Ezekiel, the things that God has him do in his prophecy, like tying himself up, cutting off his hair and spreading it around, attacking his hair, symbolizing uh, uh, the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, etc., it gets to be kind of crazy in that regard, too. Ezekiel is the one that has to cook his food on, um, on excrement, you know. So it is kind of Ezekiel suffers uh for God's word, by speaking God's word in the same way that, again, Christ is going to suffer on behalf of all his people. And uh, so we see in Ezekiel, in the life of Ezekiel, we see a type of Christ, uh, and that title uh, bears witness to that as well. Right off the bat, we have this funky stuff about eating the scroll, eating the scroll, uh, eat it up. Is, th- is this figurative, Pastor, that... Um, you know, we are to uh, figuratively eat the word of God to this day, um, you know, uh, every jot and tittle. Uh, is there something bigger than that? Is there something more than that uh, with regard to this eating eating it up, eating the scroll? Yeah, I mean, we, we use this kind of language when we talk about studying God's Word, that we read, learn, and inwardly digest it, gives this idea that we consume it and that it becomes the thing that sustains us and is our being. And I think there's a part of that here. Um, I think it's kind of uh, ironic here that he eats the scroll and it is sweet in his mouth. When we get to the book of Revelation, uh, John eats the scroll and it is sweet in his mouth, but it turns his stomach and makes him feel sick. And so whether that same thing can be said here for Ezekiel or not, uh, some Sometimes that's the reality of God's Word. It sounds really good until we actually have to apply it to our own lives and things like that. Um, Ezekiel puts the Word into his mouth, and from this point on, then, too, he's going to speak the Word out of his mouth. And so there is that that's coming uh, as well. So it is an interesting picture for us to consider. It uh, It's that, that whole part about the Word being sweet or the scroll being sweet because written on it are words of lamentation and mourning and woe. 
Now, that doesn't seem like a sweet buffet meal that I want to participate in. And yet those words, because they are the word of God, are sweet to the taste. Is that is that fair? I think it is, and I think uh, it sounds really weird until you consider what the sweetest words that we ever have considered are, which is that Christ Jesus came to suffer, bleed, and die for the forgiveness of our sins. Those are words of lamentation and woe, and yet for us as Christians, they are the greatest news that we could ever hear. And uh, the people of Israel in the book of Ezekiel, in that one sense, are kind of figures of Christ who is to come as well. They're going to be conquered. They're going to be driven out of their homes. They're going to be killed. Uh, And then Ezekiel sees a picture at the end of his book uh, of the of Jesus, I would say, infigured into the temple, a new temple that would be built. And we see that fulfilled then also in the Gospels. Christ is God's very presence among us who suffers in the same way that God's people have always suffered. Uh, Vicar, Pastor uh, Molina alluded to this, but there's a reason why God tells Ezekiel to eat the scroll, and God gives the scroll to Ezekiel to eat. In uh, 3 verse 4, Uh, He makes it very, very clear. The purpose for God feeding the scroll to Ezekiel is not merely for Ezekiel himself. What is the purpose? It's so that way he inherits God's word, if if I could say that. He is taking God's word into himself, into his belly, into his heart, receiving it. So that way he can then proclaim God's word back to the house of Israel, just as God is commanding Ezekiel to do uh, here in this pericope right now. It's so that Ezekiel is not trying to find his own words uh, because doubtful, it's very doubtful that Ezekiel's own words would really be able to uh, soften the hard hearts of the house of Israel right now. Only the words of God can do that. God's word is for proclamation. Exactly. And uh, that's made very, very clear here. Pastor, um, you know, if God sent Ezekiel to some foreign land with a language that he had never heard before, the, the people would probably listen. Um, but here God tells Ezekiel ahead of time that the people are not going to listen. Um, why was this so difficult for Ezekiel not only here but then to carry on his mission and what does that speak to the faithful pastor today? Yeah, uh, Ezekiel is not a guy who has a lot of friends. Um, <laughs> maybe that'd be the way to say it. And it's not just because of the crazy things that he did, right? Um, eating food cooked over excrement, laying on the ground on one side for weeks and then switching over to the other side, cutting off his hair and pretending that that was uh, the things besieging his own body. Um, and yet when he's doing all these things, he's speaking not his own words or his own ideas. He's speaking the words that God has given him to speak. And I think that that's what pastors are given to do as well. And it's not always well received. Sometimes the word that a pastor must speak is despised and makes people angry or uh, hate the pastor. And yet the pastor is given to speak that word because it comes from God, just like Ezekiel is given to speak these hard words because they come from God. And God will work in that the way that God sees fit to call sinners to repentance, uh, which is what Ezekiel's whole purpose is, uh, in the same way that uh, uh, Jesus also called Matthew to repentance uh, for his tax-collecting ways.
when we were talking about the gospel reading from Matthew 9, you talked about churches that don't talk about sin, churches that basically change the message because they want to be popular and they want to be big and the pews full and the coffers even fuller. Um, why didn't Ezekiel do that? Why didn't Ezekiel change the message? Yes. Uh, because Ezekiel believed in God and that uh, God was real and that God was just and that God punished sin. Uh, and it, Ezekiel knew that it wasn't his own word. In fact, we see here the word, you'll notice he eats it when it is placed into his mouth. He doesn't grab a hold of it and put it there. God even does that much. And so because Ezekiel knows that God is real and that his word is true, he speaks it as it has been given to him. That's the same thing that all pastors and clergy persons ought to keep in mind as well. Yes, and I, I think that uh, the pastor is not called to be popular. Uh, the church is not called to be popular. Uh, we're called to be faithful. And how do we know if we are faithful or not? Uh, the objective measuring line is whether we are faithful to the Word of God. And uh, that is foreign to many pastors and churches today, but there is nothing new under the sun. We need to take a break. We'll be right back. St. Matthew. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Thomas Goodroad. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship, won't you? Sunday mornings, 8 and 1030, with family Bible study for all ages in between. Wednesday evening, year-round at 630. On our Wednesday evening divine service, we have an opportunity to celebrate many of the minor festivals that you hear on this Majoring in the Minors program. We looked at the Holy Gospel reading for St. Matthew, Apostle and Evangelist, September 21 on the church's calendar in our first two segments. In our third segment, we looked at the Old Testament reading, a rich, rich reading from Ezekiel 2 and 3. And now in our final segment, we want to take a look at Ephesians 4, 7 to 16. Vicar? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended. What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, 
speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, we've got uh, we've got several wonderful topics to cover here in uh, the next fifteen minutes or so, and uh, uh, an amazing text, a beautiful text from the uh, Queen of the Epistles, the Epistle to the Church. Earlier in Chapter Four, we have the uh, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, exhortation to unity, unity that is ours in Christ Jesus, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And flowing from that unity, we have uh, these words here, Ephesians 4, 7 to 16. Pastor, we have a lot of uh, ascending and descending talk in the first part of this text from Ephesians 4. Um this text is uh, oftentimes read at the ascension of our Lord, the first part of it at least. And um, the ascension of Jesus is sometimes a uh, forgotten or overlooked aspect of Christ's work. Uh, Jesus ascended into heaven. So what? Well, yeah. What's the big deal, right? Um, I mean, it's <laughs> who hasn't done that? It's, I mean, it, it obviously it teaches us first off who he is that he is ascending into heaven. That he's doing so on his own authority, uh, which teaches us that he's God. Nobody else in Scripture goes up into heaven on their own. Closest you could come to maybe would be Enoch, but it says that God took him, and you have, uh, of course, Elijah, who is taken uh, on the God's chariot, but this particular instance, Jesus is ascending on his own authority, is the way it says, and that teaches us who he is. Thereby also, that teaches us who he was when he came. He's the same person throughout the entire thing. It's not like he earned uh, his divinity or anything like that. He is God from the beginning, and he was in heaven and came down to earth, and now uh, in the ascension he goes up into heaven. And these things are both bookends of his earthly ministry, but they don't even start to begin to talk about the things that he does uh, while he's in heaven, interceding for us, caring for us, creating us all those things. If he ascended, the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that means he also descended. Are we talking about the incarnation where God, the God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word, the eternal logos took on flesh and blood and descended to earth to do his work? Or are we talking about the descent into hell? Well, uh, it's both of these things in one sense, in the, in the sense that he's not in heaven. He's not living the life that uh, God deserves to live. But primarily in this particular instance, we are talking about the incarnation where he took on human flesh, which is a part of his, um, just lost the word, not his exaltation, but his uh, humiliation. Uh, and so taking on our human flesh is part of his humiliation, whereas the descent into hell, which he did do, is actually, uh, in a sense, his victory parade. Uh, he's going down to hell to tell all the people who didn't believe in him who he is and what they've missed out on by denying him. And uh, uh, I guess the the poppy equivalent of Christ's descent into hell would be neener, 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 right? Uh, but in all godliness and holiness, that's what Jesus is doing in his descent into hell. 
Uh, Satan thought he won, as we uh, sing in verse 2 of the uh, great, great CFW Walther hymn, He's Risen, He's Risen, and that's why you never end that hymn after verse 2. Make a mental note of that, Vicar, because uh, verse 2 leaves Jesus uh, dead and Satan laughing and victorious. Um, but then Jesus rises from the dead, and this is uh, part of his exaltation, his descent into hell. Uh, it also says in the first part of our text that Jesus ascended into heaven to fill all things. Now, there are some people that would say that Jesus ascended into heaven, and he's stuck there. Jesus ascended into heaven, and now he is physically located there, and he can't be on every altar at the same time. And, uh, you know, he'll come back, uh, but in the meantime, it's a real absence of Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 4 teaches something starkly different from that common misunderstanding in the church today. Explain to our hearers what it means that Jesus ascended into heaven to fill all things. Well, what it means is that uh, uh, we talked before, Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh, and yet uh, he still has the attributes of God in the sense that he is also present everywhere. And we see this already even in the resurrection accounts where Jesus is in the upper room uh, just a few moments after he, or perhaps at the same time uh, as he is with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he's here and there going wherever he wants to be, whenever he wants to be, because he's God and he gets to do that. And the same thing is true here. Paul is teaching us that he ascends into heaven. It's not that he's leaving. It's that he's now filling all things. He's present with us always in his word and in his sacrament, uh, sustaining us and caring for us as we journey throughout this world and waiting to take us to be with him in his kingdom fully, where it's not that he's not with us now, but then we'll realize it perfectly and see it perfectly, and uh, it'll all make a little bit more sense then he ascends into heaven after his mission is accomplished and his mission is to live a perfect life die a sacrificial death a bloody death on calvary's cross rise from the dead and uh, mission accomplished ascends into heaven fills all things and gives us the holy spirit now, the second half of our text is often where uh, a lot of uh, naughtiness goes on in the church. Starting in verse 11, now that Jesus is ascended into heaven, he fills all things. He, has, uh, he and the Father have sent the Holy Spirit. And in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, um, there are some that, you know, they argue over where do you place the comma uh, in the translation here. You got all this, all this kind of silliness going on with um, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Pastor, what does this text say and what does it mean? 
Well, um, what it is saying is that he is given the office of the holy ministry, and that's what he's talking about here when he says uh, he gave, on the one hand, apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Um, he's talking there about the office of the holy ministry. Uh, and for what purpose, then, uh, the, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for or into um, the work of ministry. This is what the office of the ministry is going to do. They are ministers for building up the body of Christ. That's what they are going to do until they all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, it's telling us what the office of the holy ministry is all about and that it is about those things, whether you call it teacher, uh, prophet, uh, shepherd, whatever it is, that's the office of the holy ministry, word and sacrament given to the church by God's will and desire. There are some that would say that this text means that God gave the apostles, uh, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the lay people so that they would do their work of ministry or the work of ministry. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, that's where, and I don't know if this is too technical for this particular show, um, but this is where the Greek comes in handy, really, because there's a pretty clear construction that's going on uh, where you have everything laid out in such a way that it says um, that's not necessarily the case. It's not talking about the saints doing the work of ministry. It's not talking about the saints um, who are building up the body of Christ. These things in the Greek construction are being applied to the office of the ministry described by prophet, apostle, uh, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. Uh, and one of those things also then is to build up the saints, but it does not saying we're building up the saints to do these other things. That's not the Greek construction. Yeah, that's a, an illegitimate use of the text. Um, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. Who is the author of this human cunning, craftiness, uh, deceitful schemes? It seems, it seems like God has given the office of the ministry to build us up and protect us when we are under attack. Is that is that kind of the picture that we get here, Pastor? I'd say so. I mean, the thing that we're being built up for and sustained in uh, through the Word and through the sacrament, through the office of the Holy Ministry uh, to withstand is the attacks of Satan, who is always seeking to undermine those gifts of the Holy Ministry, uh, who is undermining God's Word, did God really say, um, who is undermining the gifts of baptism, does that really take away your sin or not, who is undermining uh, Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, it's just bread and wine. It's a nice post-sermon snack. Um, all of that Satan is undermining, and our own logic and reason goes right along with him. And so for that reason, God has given the prophets, the evangelists, and all the rest to sustain the faith through those gifts so that we might withstand those attacks of the devil by Christ's work. Well said, Pastor. Uh, sadly, with the, the, uh, this segment and this program has come to an end. Vicar, would you pray the collect for St. Matthew, Apostle and Evangelist? We pray. O Son of God, our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, you called Matthew, the tax collector, to be an apostle and evangelist. Through his faithful and inspired witness, grant that we also may follow you, 
leaving behind all covetous desires and love of riches. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. For Pastor Moline and Vicar Goodroad, I'm Pastor Poppy. Thanks for tuning in to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. We'll be back again soon. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.